ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. In those early days, we'd been making the show for maybe a year or so and we organised a fan meet in a park and we said, hey, if you really like the show, come down. Uh, and, this uh, is Blair Jocelyn, a.k.a. Moog, a YouTube creator from Sydney. He's been making videos with his best mates since 2007 and their channel, Mighty Car Mods, has over 3.8 million subscribers. Welcome to another episode of Mighty Car Mods. We've got but in the early days, here. he was Why? surprised anyone was watching at all. Went down to the park, and I reckon there was probably about 12 people there, maybe 12 to 15 people there. And I remember I saw this child start coming over to me to say hello, and I was like, oh my God, like, I'm, like what do I say? Like, what, what do I do? It's been a journey learning how to be a public figure. Blair's had to adjust to the idea of strangers feeling like they know him. Uh, and then he came up and and goes, oh, I really love your show. And I'm like, thanks, man. I'm glad you like it. High five. Let's talk about cars. And I realised, like, that's actually the way that I wanted to interact with him. And that's, you know, that's the genuine way that it was. Most of us are more likely to be on the fan side of that kind of interaction, right? We have favourite actors, musicians, and now just as commonly favourite social media stars like Moog. It's a weird kind of relationship to be a fan of someone, because it can be so intense, so comforting. But unlike other relationships in our lives, it's almost always non-reciprocal. The definition of parasocial is non-reciprocated. I know the person, they don't know me back. And if you think about it, and you know, go back to you know network TV in the 70s, soaps were on every day, news shows were on every day, so if you were interacting daily with your favorite celebrity, there was a tremendous potential to develop an affinity for that person that felt personal. I'm Sana Kadar. This is All in the Mind. And today we ask, how is this possible? Why do we feel real emotions and attachment to people we've most likely never met? And what's it like to be on the receiving end of millions of parasocial relationships? I just became really teary, to be honest. I just burst into tears because I felt like it was my responsibility to try and help all of these people that had been through absolutely horrendous circumstances and had said, you know, your show's getting me through. Producer Rose Kerr has this week's story. I remember scrolling through Instagram one day and seeing pictures of someone I follow getting married. I was genuinely so happy for them that I sent the photos to a friend and we spent the whole afternoon discussing how exciting it was. But the thing is, I never met the bride or the groom. The couple were YouTubers who made skits and videos about their daily lives. I might have never spoken to them, but I had been following them for the better part of a decade. That afternoon, there was definitely a moment where I thought, Am I a bit weird for getting excited about a complete stranger's wedding? Parasocial interaction happens while you're consuming the media. They're talking to you from the screen and you're listening and it feels like they're talking to you. You know, if I asked you, say, no, of course, I know they're not talking to me. And we refer to that as the illusion of intimacy, that we feel like they're talking to us. This is Gail Stever from Empire State University, a professor of psychology and human development. And for the last 35 years, I've been engaged in what is known in common verbiage as fan studies, although the technical term for it is parasocial theory. 
there's an illusion that I'm having this intimate conversation. And late night talk shows are a good example. Mm. Jimmy Fallon, Stephen Colbert, where they're on TV, but they're looking at the audience and they're talking to the audience. And so you experience that as them talking to you and therefore it feels personal. This is replicated on social media too. In videos, you'll often hear someone address the audience like they're a friend. Gail says a defining aspect of a parasocial interaction is when someone speaks to you directly on camera. We talk about eye gaze and direct address mm. as, the, as the two elements that most focus the parasocial interaction. You can parasocially interact when they're not talking to you. I mean, you know, obviously Joey on Friends is never talking into the camera. He's mm. talking to other characters. But then we do something which is called identification, where I sort of identify with one of the characters and I'm sort of looking at the story from the point of view of the character I, I identify with. So now Joey's talking to my character and I, again, it's a parasocial interaction. I feel it feels personal and feels intimate. And so the parasocial relationship grows from that mediated interaction. You walk away from the TV and you're still mentally interacting with the character or the actor or both, and it becomes a parasocial relationship as parasocial relationships develop, we might find ourselves feeling comfort and security from it. We talk about parasocial attachment, that this person has now become, I mean, attachment was a term that was defined in terms of infant caregiver relationships. The infant forms an attachment to the caregiver. They seek proximity to a caregiver. They're comforted. And I began to observe in the 90s as I was doing more and more of this work, that people were deriving this sense of comfort from their favorite celebrities, and the proximity seeking was virtual. Mm. But to think about somebody with their favorite show and they're going to seek proximity, how do they do that? Well, I watch the show every week and I never miss it. Or I go on YouTube and I search on their name and I watch all the videos on YouTube that have been put up there. The concept of parasocial relationships has been around since the 50s, at first focused on late-night talk shows. The early talk shows did something that the, that today's talk shows do, which is, okay, so they're seated in the, and there's a Chase Lounge next to them, sort of in a little bit of an implied semicircle with the idea that the people at home complete circle. This is a, a, a mechanism by which they create this illusion of a conversation with the audience. And so Horton and Wall in 1956, and TV was really new, were talking about this interaction people were having with these late night talk show hosts and their guests and saying, look, these people are in your home. Then in the 70s, research on the issue really picked up. At that point, the two things they were looking at were soap opera stars and newscasters. And if you think about it, in the, you know, go back to you know, network TV in the 70s, soaps were on every day. News shows were on every day. So if you were interacting daily with your favorite celebrity, there was a tremendous potential to develop an affinity for that person that felt personal. In the 90s, psychologists, like Gail, got involved. Up until that point, it was almost exclusively mass comm and communication okay. discipline people. Now, psychology offers a whole new layer of understanding for why and how parasocial relationships occur. And Gail says those relationships develop pretty much in the same way our reciprocal face-to-face -face relationships develop. When we develop a personal relationship, when you meet someone new, um, at the beginning of that relationship, you make a decision about, gee, is this someone I'd like to meet again? Mm. Is this someone I'd like to do something with again? And then, you know... 
I mean, you know how friendship develops. You go out for lunch once and that you, you got along really well. And so you go out again and you become friends and then you become best friends. It progresses. Well, if I watch a new TV show and here's a here's an actor and I'm really moved by their performance and I think, wow, that person's really, really good. Mm. I'm going to find their other work. I want to, quote, meet them again, you see, but it's in a parasocial realm. And so you can eventually, you know, seek out their other work. And if the connection is really meaningful to you, I mean, if it's a singer, you know, go to one of their concerts. If it's an actor and they're going to appear at a convention, you can decide you want to go meet them. But it, it progresses very much in a similar fashion to a regular social relationship. Mm-hmm. Starts at a place where at every at every level you make a decision, gee, do I want to know this person better or do I want to go get to know somebody else? That happens socially and it happens parasocially. And uh, Reva Forrester and I wrote an article about this where we talked about the stages of development of parasocial relationships. Mm. And we felt that the progression was very, very similar to normal social relationships that we develop with people we actually meet face to face. But what draws us to a celebrity in the first place? Gail says there's three main motivations for people to form a parasocial relationship. The first is based on talent. This person's the best fill-in-the-blank singer, dancer, actor I've ever seen. Alternatively, we might be drawn to someone's personal qualities. This is where my appreciation for that YouTuber couple came from. They were mostly known for being funny, but long-term fans, like myself, admired their genuine nature and kindness. This person's a role model. They're... They have some really fine human qualities like kindness, compassion, philanthropy, and so forth. And the final motivation, perhaps unsurprisingly, is attractiveness. You know, certainly fans look at someone who's nice looking and develop maybe a crush on that celebrity. There's a whole literature in and of itself where we talk about, you know, the crush, the, the feeling you get for someone that you're attracted to. And one of the misconceptions about this is that this is an adolescent thing. I was going to sell you. <laughs> but Reva Forrester, who is a prominent researcher in parasocial romantic relationships, she wrote her book in 2021 about that. And she found that she had participants in her research of all age groups, from teenagers up to people in their 60s and 70s. Wow. And that developing a crush on a celebrity is a kind of a common lifelong thing. And most people, it's just a fun thing that they do, but it's usually broadens. If they're going to stay in a person's fandom for a number of years, if they've just got an attraction to them as an attractive person, that doesn't usually last. It's the attraction to the talent, to the quality of person. One of my biggest case studies was Josh Groban. And I started looking at him in 2005, and he was very young then, and one of the things people really liked about him was that as at a very young age, he started a charity foundation and was very invested in youth arts education. And so that's still his Find Your Light Foundation. That's still an emphasis in his philanthropy. And a lot of his fans are very committed to his charity. So, you know, I've asked fans, why did you join this fan club and why did you stay in it? And they will say, well, I got better access to concert tickets. That's why I joined. <laughs> but I stayed because of the charity foundation. And in the process of working on his charity, I made friends with other like-minded fans who've become my my good, close friends. And so a lot of people 
stay in the fandom for both the charity work and their friends that they've made. If we, the audience, are forming these non-reciprocal relationships with celebrities, what's it like for the object of our affection? How does it feel to have potentially millions of people who know you, but you don't know them? Blair Jocelyn is a YouTube creator based in Australia who's experienced this firsthand. I'm a musician and a composer from Sydney, Australia, and I'm also a YouTube creator, and I am the co-creator of a show called Mighty Carmorts. Uh, on the show, I'm known as Moog, uh, and I make that with my best mate, Marty, and it's a show about cars and automotive adventures. Blair and Marty have been making YouTube videos together since 2007. Which was just really soon actually after YouTube had started. So it's been going for almost 16 years. Originally it was kind of a DIY channel or showing people how to fix their cars themselves. But over time it's kind of morphed into a bit of a, uh, an adventure show. So we uh, typically might go and buy a really cheap car in a country somewhere in the world and then we'll fly in and then road trip in that car, learning about the culture, meeting people. It's completely unscripted. It is a beautiful day. And the perfect day to go hunting for cars. Now, we have done a couple of barn finds before, but today is something special. The last one we did, of course, was the 240. If you're not into cars today, or don't watch YouTube, you might be thinking, how big could a car channel be? Well, at the time of recording, Mighty Car Mods has over 3.8 million subscribers. We passed 1 billion views of our videos, uh, making it the most watched Australian car show in history, which we're really proud of because we make it in this tiny little suburban garage that's just big enough for two cars. We and a bunch of those viewers have formed parasocial relationships with Blair. In those early days, we'd been making the show for maybe a year or so, and we organised a fan meet. So we organised a meeting in a park and we said, hey, if you really like the show, come down. More recently, these small meetups have become national tours. A few years ago, we decided to take Mighty Car Mods on tour and we did a bunch of shows all around Australia. And we'd get between three and 5,000 people in each city and they were just people who were so lovely and so kind and so enthusiastic about the show. And one of the couples that we'd met had met at a previous fan meet years earlier. They'd met there, since got together, got married, had a kid... And they introduced us to this child who, of course, was wearing Mighty Come Odds merchandise. And we were like, this little kid exists in some kind of strange way because we uploaded some videos to the internet and that was very strange. This is something Gail mentioned about parasocial relationships. People sometimes want to meet the people they follow. My friend, the actor who does a lot of sci-fi conventions, yeah. told me a very wise thing. She said, people don't come to a convention to meet me. They want me to meet them. They want me to witness what my character did for them wow and and i th and i i've sat at a lot of autograph tables at a lot of science fiction conventions this is one of the things i've done to observe fan celebrity interaction and let me tell you there's a lot of that people will walk up to the table to get their autograph and they'll say very quickly oh your character inspired me to become an engineer oh your character really meant a lot to me because blah blah mm -hmm. blah I've probably been to over 100 sci-fi conventions over 35 years, and I see an awful lot of kindness by celebrities shown to fans, and they don't have to do that. They're there to sign autographs and have photos taken and do a Q&A, and they can just put in their little bit and go home. And um, I had a friend in 2004 who was dying of cancer, and I went to her last convention with her, and she met with each of about five different celebrities she'd become friendly with over the years. And they sat backstage and cried with her. Oh. But that is a lot of emotional labour. 
each celebrity makes up their own mind about the way they want to interact with their audience and they go from there. And it's very different from person to person. Yeah. Um, 35 years I've been looking at this and I yeah. get to see two that were alike, <laughs> you know. There are very unique individuals involved. For Blair, this meant drawing a line between public and personal life. There was a period of time that for me, it actually felt like it was fairly invasive when I was going out and people were saying hello to me and asking for photos. I would always do it and I would always say hello, but sometimes I felt like maybe I didn't want to. And particularly if I wasn't feeling well or I was at a hospital with someone or something like that, those things I found a bit of a struggle. And I really didn't know what the best way to deal with that was. And I realized there's probably lots of people that don't know how to deal with that stuff as well. And so after I had um, I'd done a fan meet in Australia and a lot of people had come up to me that had significant mental health uh, issues and I wanted to hear their story and I wanted to honor what was going on for them, but I couldn't deal with it during a fan meet. And so I said, you know, I'll just speak with them afterwards. And uh, afterwards, there was probably about 10 or 15 people that were kind of waiting to have a chat with me after everybody was left. And I tried to kind of help them with some encouraging words um, and tried to put them in connection with each other so they could look after each other and maybe check in on each other. But I flew back home and when I got home, you know, I was having a shower before I went to bed and I just, um, I just, I just became really teary to be honest. I just burst into tears because I felt like it was my responsibility to try and help all of these people that had been through Mm. absolutely horrendous circumstances and had said, you know, your show is getting me through and watching your show each week makes me feel ABC and those things to me. I went, I really felt the pressure of kind of keeping going. And so um, that was a time that I definitely thought, you know, I think I need to get some therapy for myself to get some tools on how I can better deal with that. Because if I can't really cope with that, then I'm not going to have much longevity in here. And it also, I just need to be able to protect myself. Blair decided he would try therapy. I went and um, spoke with a psychologist and I said, you know, I'm kind of struggling a little bit with how I kind of take on the needs of these people without, without it weighing me down too much. And I told him my whole story. And then he said, you know, like full disclosure, I was at your fan meet a few weeks ago and we got a photo. And so I kind of went, well, you know, and, and is that a problem for you? And I went, absolutely, it's a problem for me because I, try and, I, I want to try and work something out that's not that. I went to see another therapist and this is not even a joke. He suggested that I watch some YouTube videos <laughs> uh, about it. Uh, and um, so I wasn't super keen on doing no. that either. And then um, uh, finally, I, I found a therapist that just fully got it. Like he was just fantastic. He's appeared on this show before. Mm. He was unreal. But I did have a chat with him last week and we decided not to share his name publicly. He he became my psychologist and I spoke with him and I said, you know, this is going on in my life. This is happening. This is happening. This is happening. This is happening. I feel exhausted. I feel tired. I, I don't know what to do. And he said, why shouldn't you feel exhausted and tired? And I said, what do you mean? And he's like, why shouldn't you? I mean, one of these things that you've just told me would be really hard to deal with. You've just told me five or six things, including that you kind of live your life publicly on the internet. You've got people coming to people coming to my house, people coming to my work, people following me around, people chasing me in their cars. I mean, it's it's one of these things would be troublesome and you've got all of them. And so that was a real turning point for me that I stopped expecting that you can kind of live your life and take the benefits of YouTube, but at the same time, you don't get any of the flip side of it as well. The flip side is people are going to recognize you. Mm. People are going to come and say hello, and I need better strategies for that. And my strategy for that was to be as authentic with anyone that comes up to me as I can with the time that I have, but also let them know that I have got other things going on and I can only spare a minute or two, and I'll talk to anyone that comes and says hi. That makes so much sense that you needed to hear that empathy that you don't have to just give, (laughs) give and give and give. That's, yeah. Despite accruing over a billion views on his channel, there's a part of Blair's life that he's never shared publicly before. 
It was inspired by his experiences on YouTube and with fans. When I finished high school, I was enrolled uh, to do psychology uh, at university. And at the last minute, one of my friends said, you know what, you should have a crack at music. And it was really good advice. You know, it turned out that I could create a career of music that I really loved. But I always like finishing things that I set my mind to. So 20 years later on the anniversary of that, uh, in 2016, I went back to uni to do my postgrad. And I did that for three years part time because I was also working and kind of living my life. I had enough credit points to exit with a graduate diploma of counselling, uh, which is where I finished. And my interest in studying that was because I was really interested in the psychology of social media. I was really interested in what happens to the brain, but most of the bias and interest on social media and mental health has always been on the consumption, whereas my real interest was the mental health and longevity of the creators of social media. And certainly when I went into my master's class for the first time and everybody had to introduce themselves and you've got, you know, trauma nurses and people working in hospitals and people working in jails. And I said, I'm really interested in famous people and the psychology of their brain. Uh, and um, and I felt a little bit embarrassed saying that, but I remember the doctor who was running the class, he said, "That's the I've never heard someone say that before. I've never heard somebody say that before in this class. And I think it's actually a really interesting field. And so that was that. And I was really interested in working specifically with some of the uh, giants of social media to help them and, and help some of the users of those platforms. Something that I've been really passionate about over the last few years is working with other content creators. And certainly there's a lot of therapists out there and there's a lot of YouTubers out there and there are some YouTube therapists, but there's not many people that have kind of got their feet in both sides at the same time. And so for me, that was something that I was really interested in working with younger people. So uh, YouTube asked if I could help them by appearing at an event that they were doing over in Korea. I did some seminars and did some small groups where we would just kind of deal with how you can be healthy as a creator. And most of these creators were fairly uh, large scale, you know, cumulatively, they I mean, tens of millions of followers. And we were really looking at this base level stuff of, yes, we were kind of looking at what was going on in, in the brain and what was going on in your body, but also looking at what is the best way of moderating comments? What do you do when there's people, you know, saying hurtful things about you? How do you sit? What is your posture? How do you eat? How do you breathe? Um, really, really simple things like this. And for a lot of people that are creating content for social media, they are controlling their life and the way that they're perceived to such an extent that they're really, really uncomfortable with ever having something that is not going to plan. And it turns out that for a lot of people that exists in their life as well. They do not like being uncomfortable. And there's this preconceived idea or a misconception that content creators are all these extroverts. Um, I would say it's mostly the opposite. A lot of them are introverts and they've found this little this little kind of crack in the glass where they can kind of get some of their get some of their personality out. But a lot of them are really struggling. And when you speak to them the first time about basic things like sleep hygiene, they haven't heard it before. They're up all night editing. So I'm certainly not an expert and I consider myself a Swiss army knife in this field as well, but just to be able to give them some basic skills and say, we need to make sure that your comment moderation time is not 24 hours a day. We're gonna set an alarm for 15 minutes and you've got some friends that you do YouTube with. You're gonna meet up at a cafe every two days and you're gonna meet up together and you're gonna go through the comments. Simple things like that. Does everyone have parasocial relationships, whether they know it or not? I would argue that they do. Now, remember, I said a parasocial attachment mm. is I'm deriving comfort security from my favorite celebrity. Not everybody does that. But we all have social relationships with a lot of people. We don't think about the fact that, you know, what do you know about your next door neighbor? Maybe you've talked to them three times and you wave to them when you go outside, but that's still a relationship. Yeah. It's not an attachment, but it's a relationship. 
I have parasocial relationships with a lot of people that I don't realize I have a relationship with. And usually what it takes for me to recognize that is for something to happen. Yeah. I would point to the recent death of Matthew Perry Mm -hmm. and a lot of people who didn't realize how much friends had affected our culture, how, you know, the feelings we had for that character and the actor by extension and his untimely death, I think sort of made people go, oh, wow, he's gone. Wow, that's terrible. I mean, you know, you can't, you don't say that's terrible and grieve a loss if you didn't have a relationship to start with. That would be my argument. Yeah. So whether you knew it or not, you had a parasocial relationship. If you watched Friends at all, you probably knew those characters. You knew qualities that they had. And so that's a parasocial relationship. A few weeks after recording our interview... Blair decided to release a video that shared a personal story he had previously kept private from his audience. It's called The Hardest Thing I've Ever Done, a film about life, loss and exercise. And I kind of spoke about for the first time uh, what it was like to kind of go through some hardships and deal with my own mental health and also the struggles I had um, trying to help look after my dad who was terminally ill. And I made this film and it's a story about me kind of competing in this CrossFit competition and I really wasn't sure whether I'd release it or not. And I spoke to my mum about it, who I just, I absolutely adore my mum to bits. And obviously, you know, she kind of lost her husband and I felt like that story was not just my story, but it's a story of hers as well. And I showed her this film and and the film is pretty raw. And um, yeah, she just said to me, look, like if that film can help one person, it is absolutely worth it um, and you should release it. And so I released that film out in the wild and... I literally hit public on the video and then I just closed my computer and went to bed. I was too scared to kind of see the comments or see what was going on there. And the next day when I woke up, I was just overwhelmed with the amount of support that I'd received. Since release, it's had over half a million views. And the comments are flooded with people thanking Blair for sharing something so personal and responding with their own experiences of loss. But what was really interesting was a lot of comments of people that had kind of been saying, look, I've been watching you on YouTube for 15 years and it never occurred to me that you're like a real person that's going on with real struggles. And while those comments came across as really supportive, it also made me even more acutely aware of how the consumption of social media can kind of blunt the real senses of, you know, that is a real person on the other end. But the comments there were just so overwhelming and so many people shared their stories of maybe losing a family member or going through some tough times. And, you know, I spoke about my anxiety in that film and I kind of felt really supported. And in fact, it was some of the most overwhelming comments I've ever seen anywhere. And and I do go back and check that film sometimes um, just to kind of have a read and see what's going on. And I think it was almost kind of part of doing this interview with the ABC that made me think, you know, like what are the reasons that I share or don't share certain things? And I just decided... I'm just going to tell the truth. I'm just going to make a film about the struggles that I went through. And um, yeah, it was it was a very hard thing to do, but I'm really glad that I did. What's your relationship with being a public figure now? I think studying counselling and psychotherapy has kind of fundamentally changed the way that I do interact with people. And for a long time, I guess I didn't really know what to say when someone came up into the street and said hi. I just didn't, like, I didn't really know what I was meant to do. But there's this idea in therapy of unconditional positive regard. One of the pillars is this idea to try and support and accept a person regardless of what the person is kind of saying. I guess it's kind of removing the judgment and just listening. And I think while, you know, I'm kind of not doing therapy when I meet someone in the street, but I think that listening is really the best gift that you can give someone. And if someone comes up to you in the street and they've been watching my videos for 
10 years or 15 years or maybe they've bought merch or they've kind of come to a live so I think the least that I can do is give them a really authentic interaction and you do that by listening That is Blair Jocelyn, also known as Moog. He's the co-creator of the YouTube channel Mighty Car Mods. You also heard from Professor Gail Stever from Empire State University in New York. This episode was reported and produced by Rose Kerr, and it was mixed by sound engineer Roy Huberman. And that's it for All in the Mind this week. I'm Sana Kadar. Thank you for listening. I'll catch you next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.